Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors In. This podcast features top-performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we're joined by Dr. Anisha Kumar, who is an otolaryngologist with specializations in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. Dr. Kumar graduated from Harvard University with a bachelor's degree and Stanford University with a medical degree. She completed her otolaryngology residency at Johns Hopkins. She received her training from world-renowned surgeons at Johns Hopkins and did considerable study on patient values in facial plastic surgery and hair transplant operations. So, with over a dozen peer-reviewed articles, many book chapters, and countless podium addresses at National Academy gatherings, she graduated as chief resident. Dr. Kumar performs a wide range of facial aesthetics and rejuvenation procedures, including rhinoplasty, facelifts, chin implants, lip lifts, and injectable treatments. Her current research interests include social perception of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery and quality of life measures associated with facial deformities. To look at the incredible transformations and highlights of facial surgical procedures, you can follow Dr. Kumar on Instagram at Dr. Anisha Kumar. That's D-R-A-N-I-S-H-A-K-U-M-A-R. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Kumar to the inn. Well, hello there. Welcome, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun as we were kind of discussing earlier. I do really appreciate your journey through medicine and uh, we'll definitely dive deep into that. But for now, I do want to ask, you're currently working at Mount Sinai. So how does it feel to be back in New York? Oh, it's been great. So I was actually born and raised in Westchester, New York. So New York has a a close place to my heart and I've gotten the opportunity to travel to different parts of the country for medical training. Um, But it's really nice to be back in New York. Um, I think one of the most important things I've realized in medical training is having a good support system. And my family is still currently in Westchester, New York. So it's been great to have them close by and really reconnect with them after all these years of training. Um, Also, New York City has amazing diversity, not just in terms of the population, the food, but also pathology, what you see with what patients bring in. You can be in one hospital for purely cosmetic surgery and another hospital for patients who've never gotten medical care until now. And you're the first uh, facial plastic surgeon they've seen for a reconstructive procedure. So that diversity is something you really don't get anywhere else other than New York City. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, the difference between non-functional and then obviously functional surgeries. We'll definitely get into that when we're talking about ENT. But so far, kind of it's part of your fellowship to oversee ENT residents. So I guess this is kind of a good way to segue into the mentor-mentee relationship. Uh, How have you adjusted to this, you know, role where you are now supervising and overseeing a lot of the residents where you were literally uh, not so long ago? Right. No, that's a great point. You know, um, it's it's a different experience to be on the other end and to be as to act as their attending, which is a unique privilege you get in our fellowships where you're not just a trainee. You're also supervising people, other trainees underneath you who were you know in your same position just a few years ago. Um, 
you know, there's an unspoken concept in medicine that I've realized about paying it forward in medical training, um, basically where you remember all the helpful things that your mentors or your senior, you may have even met them only once or twice, but what they have taught you or done for you. And then now it's your turn to pay it forward and help the people um, that you're working with. And so, of course, you know, my part of my obligation and something I really enjoy doing is training the residents in surgical procedures and answering their questions about the material. But more importantly is to become over the years, a role model for them, just as I had asked you know, people a few years ahead of me for advice as well. You know, I'm remembering when I was in medical school, um, I was the first year and I, there was another girl a few years ahead of me. I never met her, but I just knew that she was going into otolaryngology or ENT. I just emailed her and then she immediately responded. And now she has become sort of a mentor over the years. But that idea of remembering where you came from, remembering all the help you got from people, even if you didn't really know who they were, and establishing those connections have been a really important part of medicine and, and something I'm trying to remember as I'm interacting with residents going forward. Um, and hopefully I can kind of be there for them as, as I had many people who are there for me uh, answering my questions, even if I didn't really know them personally. But that's sort of the obligation, I think, in medicine. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. I, I would say yeah, it, it is definitely apparent in a lot of the scholarly fields, such as you would even see in research, right? Like bench lab research scientists, they they do also have this this obligation, this internal obligation. It's not really explicitly put out, but it's like, okay, I need to help the next generation because of all the mentors I've had. So it is incredible what you're doing, um, kind of being on the other end. But would you say that, you can be a mentor and a mentee at the same time. Absolutely. And I think that's something you that all of us have to cultivate in medicine, probably in other fields as well. Um, you know, it's something that's not really spoken about as much as it should be, in my opinion, in medical training, where like, how do you find mentors? Where do you begin? When do you begin? Do you start in medical school and residency? Do you wait for a certain period? Do you need to be, do you need to have certain qualifications to even approach somebody and say, Hey, you know, do you mind if I ask you some questions? And so I think, I hope that becomes a bigger part of medical training, um, as the years to come, but the advice that I got about being a mentor and a mentee is, you know, find people who represent what you want to be in 20 years from now and try to learn their story, either directly or indirectly, um, and not just about their successes, but also what were their decision points and crossroads and what what do they wish they'd done differently? Because um, I think that's really where you get to know somebody and you can relate to their experiences. If you just look at someone's CV it doesn't really re reveal all the challenges that they've been through and also the decisions they've had to make to figure out how to get to where they want to be, especially in the field of medicine, not just where you want to be professionally, but personally as well, too. I'm thinking back to my own experiences in residency where the mentors that I eventually sought to emulate and connect with, you know, there were people who were amazing in their fields. Um, and wonderful leaders, but they were also great partners and mothers and fathers and good mentors to the younger generation. And I think seeing someone holistically and figuring out how do I become that person, not just in terms of their surgeries or what they do for patients, but for the society and for their families, I think that's really helpful. Because right. ultimately, medicine's a choice, right? You Anytime you, the more you put into your work, you're also giving up sometimes on other things too. And seeing where you want to be overall is, is a helpful uh, metric. Yeah, it's not just the technical aspects that you're trying to uh, emulate or really study, but there's so much more to it. I completely agreed. The other thing is, 
so when you are reaching out to these um, soon-to-be mentors, right, do you specifically use the word like, hey, do you want to be my mentor? Or is that kind of too far-fetched? And it can be a little scary, right, for, for someone who haven't known you yet. It's like, hey, <laughs> I need a mentor. Can you be my mentor uh, type of thing? But so how would you approach it if you were, you know, a student, a medical student, maybe even a pre-med, right? And and you're trying to see yourself in their shoes in the future. So what would be the best way to, I guess, indirectly or directly approach the situation? I mean, that's a great question. You know, I think um, finding mentors is sort of like forging like professional friendships in a way. So I think the idea of reaching out to somebody and saying, hey, do you want to be my friend? <laughs> if you never met them, that'd be a little intimidating. Um, but the same way, like, you know, being a mentor or a mentee is like a vetting. There is a vetting process because you may find out that you, that person may not be a good fit for you um, and you don't really see them as your mentor or you don't want to be their mentee. So I would say the best thing would be to try to um, just reach out to that person and say, you know, I am so-and-so and here's what I'm doing. I'm very much interested in what you're doing and why. And I'd love to, you know, chat with you for a few minutes about your career, or I'd love to shadow you at work. Um, and that way it's, it's a very gradual getting to know you process from, for both people. Yeah. Um, and, and even as a mentee, you may find like after spending time, like, Oh, I like, I really like this person or the other person may not be a good fit. Um, so I would say, but just certainly reaching out and that's kind of going back to the idea of paying it forward. And if you, if the person, you know, maybe email them once or twice, you know, sometimes people are busy, you know, the emails get missed, unfortunately, but if they don't respond and that sort of gives you an answer, like maybe that's not the kind of person who values or is interested or has time for, mentorship. Um, and so I think that itself gives you a lot of information, but I would start by just approaching that person and being honest and saying like, here's where I am. Here's where you are. I'd love to know more and then see how it goes. Yeah. There's a lot of value in what you just said in terms of knowing when to stop, when to, you know, uh, start over with perhaps someone else, because it is completely true that you do need a level of connection. I guess uh, metrics are different for every single person in terms of what they're looking for in a mentor versus a mentee. So yeah, definitely a puzzle fitting uh, type of situation here. So I do want to go into leadership because you have written an, a very thorough article on leadership development and uh, surgical training. And uh, you laid out, you know, the four domains of leadership execution and um, influence, relationship building and strategic thinking. So I can see kind of where execution, relationship building and strategic thinking is heavily relied upon, especially in medicine. However, I'm not exactly, I guess, certain or sure about like what you mean by influence. Um, so also for the audience, if, if you can briefly define the other three pillars of the leadership as well. Sure. Um, so, you know, all my, I guess I'll, to backtrack a little bit, maybe give some context, like my interest in leadership development came in medical school uh, or sorry, in residency, because I entered residency, especially it's a, I was obviously in a surgical training program. And what the rhetoric that I had been given was that leaders have a, set, a certain set of innate uh, traits. You know, so leaders look a certain way, act a certain way. Um, and it's certainly that perception has existed in the culture of surgery where you need to be very domineering and potentially like 
um, loud and controlling and, or, you know, you, and you see these characters, even in like TV shows that act a certain way as a surgeon. And that was very confusing to me. Um, and I didn't find that to be very accurate when I was in residency. Uh, The main reason why it bothered me was because I'm, you know, that's not my personality. And I started to wonder, does if I'm not like that, am I going to be able to lead an OR or lead a clinic or be a leader in this field if that's not my personality? Do you need to have a certain set of characteristics to be a leader? Because ultimately, surgeons are leaders in the operating room. It's a team project between anesthesiologists, nurses, the patient, and all the techs and everybody else in the room. But at the end of the day, you look at the surgeon to know when the procedure starts, what's happening, when it ends, et cetera. Um, and so that was something that was on my mind for a couple of years. Um, and then I was lucky enough to take this course through the Graduate Medical Education Office at Hopkins about leadership development. And, and the crux of the course was that leadership is not a set of innate characteristics that you need to have to be a leader. Leadership is cultivated from your own personal characteristics. And the most important part is that anyone is capable of being a leader and everybody has that potential. And we're all different people, obviously, right? So the 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 point is to utilize what who you are and what you're good at and using that in these domains, these four domains, and utilizing where you're strongest to become a leader. And all leaders are inherently different for that reason. So that to me was obviously very comforting because it really goes to show that anyone can be a surgeon if they want to, anyone can be a leader if they want to, and we all have unique traits that we can kind of utilize. Um, So you you were asking me a little bit about the different domains. Uh, The different domains in our leadership course were execution, relationship building, influencing, and strategic thinking. Um, So a little bit about each of them. Execution is someone who has Mm -hmm. an innate ability to get things done, basically. Like, can you yourself you know, put the tasks through, complete them, not just, you know, think about what's important, but make sure they get done in a timely manner. That's what I would say execution would be. Um, So maybe someone who is specifically really good at being organized and um, delegating tasks and reminding their team, you know, when we need to be finishing all these things. Or another domain would be relationship building. So here are the people who are the strengths are really connecting with others. So not just with connecting with other physicians, but being able to connect with nursing staff, patients, um, the entire healthcare the technician, team. Yeah, the entire yeah. team, because like exactly like medicine is not just about the physician. It's clearly to get especially surgery. The result is coming from the teamwork from the whole team. Um, and then influencing is what you were asking me about to explain more. So, you know, when people hear influencing, they're like, oh, social media, influencer, the way the course explained in the way my understanding is an influencer is somebody who can share their vision and their value system with the team such that the whole team is able to believe in those values. So let's say, you know, my value for my clinic is that we are going to provide um, excellent clinical care that's patient focused. So that's a value that I believe in, and I'm and using other you know characteristics such as execution, relationship building. I want to influence my team to also have those shared values to make them feel like that is the most important thing. So when a patient comes in, their experience with the ambience and the environment, having a timely experience, you know, making sure the clinic runs on time, making sure they get the resources, maybe following up with the phone call, like everything we do. Is, influ- is influenced by that value that we have. Right, so the shared vision. Exactly. 
And the last thing is strategic thinking. And I think that's probably a little more self-explanatory. You know, what's the vision for the future? Um, and where do we go from here? Right. Thank you so much for kind of going through all the four domains. Um, you did mention that you have to cultivate uh, kind of where you're very strong at and then bring it forward. So for you, which one of these were kind of like your strong suits? So I think for me, um, I would say that relationship building has been something that has been luckily, um, you know, give so far and growing. And I think I, I truly enjoy working with the other staff members in the OR. I think you get to know them. And um, but I, I, for me, seeing, recognizing that relationship building was a strength and seeing how my attendings were cultivating, that was really helpful. So so one thing that has really struck out to me when I was a medical student, I was doing an away rotation in OB-GYN and I was on overnight call. And I specifically still remember the attending who came in overnight for an emergent procedure. And then at the end of the case, thanked everybody in the room for their help in that case. And it was like 2 a.m. So, of course, everybody wanted to go home and go to sleep. But that that example still stands at my mind because that's part of relationship building. Like you can be, you know, easy to talk to, but how do you really maintain those relationships and be memorable for your, your coworkers, your staff? Um, and I still remember that example all these years later, but, you know, thanking the support staff, thanking your colleagues, your anesthesiologists, that nurse for their help that day at 2 a.m. I mean, that's something that sets you apart from another physician. 100%. And as I was reading your article, I was very intrigued with how one of your mentors would build report with each anesthesiologist, scrub techs, and the OR by learning about their backgrounds, as as you mentioned, and interests and families, things like that. So showing that level of recognition and that having that connection is obviously very effective because everyone feels that level of responsibility to live up to, right? To live up to the expectations and to feel because they feel connected enough to work with each other. Um, so I guess from that experience, uh, from your experience, has this part of relationship building been more prominent with female physician mentors more than the male? And if so, why do you think that is the case? That's a great question. And, you know, I I was wondering when I was first starting this course about whether it would there would be some sort of like gender or personality trait or something that's recognizable and you know, who would be stronger in which domain. And I, I would say I don't think there is at all because, you know, I've seen especially like female attendings who are really good at execution. Right. And surprisingly, like male attending or maybe not surprisingly, male attendings who are better at relationship building. And I think it really just depends on the personality of the attending and, and their experiences. Um, and also like the and you know, what they have seen, right? Like for the example of this OB-GYN attending that I saw, like that really stood out to me. And so similarly, if an attending has seen something that was very effective, they may start to emulate that aspect. It is very good to have people such as yourself and people who we have mentored dispel the quote-unquote surgical personality, right? Because the surgical personality, as you were talking about, especially in shows and things like that, it's like, oh, execution, that's 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 all that matters. We are going to be very straightforward. I'm going to be, you know, like an asshole or whatever and go, go like that. But that's definitely not the case. And um, from my personal experiences, I mean, I haven't been you know in the surgical headspace at all but from just the entrepreneurial stuff like with the podcast and managing my team here and then for another uh project relationship building is such an important key element and um i think it is 
sometimes overshadowed by something such as execution because execution is what you see as the end product but then how you get to that is through relationship building right um yeah and it is incredibly important so thank you so much for highlighting that one takeaway if if, if i have any advice and um you know it's possible to be a leader if you want. And, and leader doesn't mean like you need to have a title or you need to be in charge of people. Leader can be anything, a leader of a family, a family unit, a leader of a community. Leadership is not just for people with CVs and titles and you know things like that. Like that's just an inherent quality for any aspect of life. Um, but my, I mean, the one I found was most empowering is that anyone can cultivate those skills and you can be who you are and still be a leader. And that's something that I found really inspiring because you know, when I started out in training, I was told that you're, you know, you're too quiet, you're not aggressive enough. And that, you know, I wasn't going to change who I am. I felt like there has to be a way that we can all be good at what we do and inspire and lead and make change with who we are. And I think that's absolutely possible for men, women, anyone out there. Um, So that would just be my kind of unsolicited advice, I guess. I'm glad, you know, we had the chance to talk about leadership. I do want to take some time to dive deeper into otolaryngology, specifically the training. So what gravitated you towards the specialty when you were doing your clinical rotations at Stanford? Otolaryngology, you know, now it's becoming a lot more popular, but at that time was a pretty obscure field that no one had really heard about. It wasn't even a part of core rotation. And I really had to do some digging to figure out what it even was. Um, and I think people just get thrown off by the long name and then there's the shortcut of ENT and what does it all mean? So that's, it is very confusing, unfortunately. Um, I was interested in a field where I could do procedural work and then also have sufficient clinical time. And I found that some of the surgical specialties were very heavily surgery focused and not as much about clinical time. And then there was certain medical field and internal medicine that were very focused on medicine and not as many procedures. And so I wanted a good balance about that. Um, I also wanted the opportunity to treat men, women, children, everyone, which that's what, you know, otolaryngology really gives you that whole demographic opportunity or exposure. Um, and then the other thing about the, about otolaryngology that really stands out is you are not just surgically treating the patients, but you are the medical doctor as well. Um, so for example, you know, and I have obviously limited knowledge of urology or nephrology, but there's clearly an overlap between the surgical side through urology and the medical management of kidney disease with nephrology. In otolaryngology, you're it. Like there's no medical equivalent of the surgical side. So there's certainly medical treatment that's in, of, for a sinus disease or cancer and all that involvement. Um, and, and that you're the go-to person for both medical and surgical, which I really liked having that holistic approach and being able to manage both sides of it. Um, so that was, you know, one, those were like the practical reasons why I was drawn towards otolaryngology. The maybe innate reason was, or one of the innate reasons was I, I'm a classically trained dancer, uh, Indian classical dance called Paratnatyam. And I felt like there was a lot that I could relate to in terms of both form and function with otolaryngology in the face, the neck. Um, I think probably that's what drove me to facial plastics is just the idea of communication, um, but also aesthetics that are involved with the face and the neck and how, you know, of course, every organ and part of the body is important, but in many ways, what defines you is what people see, which is your face, your neck and and the emotions you convey. And that's how you communicate that. That is what human life is. Um, So I think that was very fascinating to me to learn more about. 
Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned the dance uh, because as we were doing our homework for the for the podcast, I've noticed that some of your crucial life memories were based around dance, and um, I believe it's pronounced Arangetram, right? Yes. That's yes, correct. and it is a South Asian Indian style of dance. Um, so I guess you did mention how it influenced uh, you practicing or going into ENT, but dance is a means of artistic expression. Uh, but also, it is very intense, uh, the discipline that is involved, the precision. So would you say that involvement played a role kind of in you appreciating the minuscule muscle movements and things such as that? Absolutely. I think, you know, everybody has some kind of origin story to why facial plastics and, um, and a lot of my colleagues are like are artists actually, and so they are drawn towards the aesthetic aspects of facial plastics through that. I think for me, it was it was certainly this Indian classical dance. You know, um, Bharatnatyam is it's a very unique classical style. It's highly stylized. It's almost like a, an Indian version of ballet, where the physical movements are very stylized, and there's a certain um, set of rules you follow, but then there's also a narrative component that's, that's highly artistic and fluid and definitely focuses on facial movement and every muscle. It's, it's a narrative form of dance as well. So every, every movement you make, the eyebrow raising, the smile and how much each element, each muscle moves certainly conveys different emotions in the story. And so that's something growing up that I was very kind of tuned to from my own training in, in dance. And certainly I can appreciate um, in facial plastics and hopefully will help me in, in this career as well. The discipline is there. I would say, you know, there's, it was a very demanding, it is a demanding art form to have to learn. And my, my parents thankfully put me in the, in the dance classes starting age five. And then I continued for many, many years till graduation and luckily in college and then beyond as well. But um, certainly I think medical training, especially surgical training is very demanding and requires that sort of dedication um, and there's certainly moments in both dance and medical training where you feel like, oh, I can't do this anymore. It's too much. But um, then you see the ultimate goal and continue forward. So uh, there are a lot of parallels between dance training um, for the for a physician and a surgeon, and then also the appreciation of the aesthetics and the facial movements through this specific art form. Yeah, to kind of provide a little bit more context in terms of uh, the intensity of, of this dance. Uh, one of your posts, in, in one of your reflective posts, you did say that as a dancer, my mind has been conditioned to ignore the pain of my feet, maintaining perfect posture. And it's like when you're reading like the autobiography or, or like of someone, and then you see something that is that intense, it makes you wonder, right? It's like, oh wow, like this is such an art form that demands so much, but then it obviously has peripheral Im impact on other aspects of your life so it is uh very interesting because and then you follow up momentary pain is insignificant when it comes <laughs> when it creates grace and portrays the intricacy symmetry and precision of this ancient art form and it's like that is so <laughs> intense <laughs> i mean i think you know the same could probably be said for surgery i mean you're for depending on the procedure but Oftentimes, just even medical students, poor medical students are staying there for hours and mm -hmm. you know, retracting and your muscles are aching and or you're doing, you know, microsurgery under the microscope, very precise movements of, you know, millimeters make every difference. So I, I think it's something I'm sure everybody has to go through in different ways, whether you're an artist or an athlete or anything like that. And it's something you get accustomed to. But certainly from an outside perspective, it is it's a lot to ask of um you know, medical trainees and also artists and dancers. So 
there's an appreciation for that. But the end result, you know, what it's a patient outcome or a dance performance is what you really can't keep your mind focused on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, beautifully said. So I do want to kind of dive into this advice session. Um, so what advice would you have for students who are interested in ENT residency? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been thinking more about that, honestly, now um, in my final year of training. And there is there seems to be, I think, in society in general, a, a trend towards specialization, like everything is becoming hyper specialized. Um, and I can't comment much about other fields because I don't know as much about it. But like everything around me is so hyper specialized, even the products you see in the market are like, you know, specific earbuds for this specific, your phone, you know, everything like that. But in medicine, that's also becoming the case too, where there are more and more subspecialties of each field. Now, ENT or otolaryngology is already fairly subspecialized. I mean, now it's more popular, but it, it, it's not a core rotation by any means for medical training. Um, and so I, my advice is that there's a natural tendency to wanting to become hyper-specialized, myself included. I, I mean, I, I'm hyper-specialized in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. What I would say is, you know, take a step back and recognize that the goal is to become a well-trained otolaryngologist. You know, I didn't really think about that much when I was in residency. I just thought, oh, I want to do facial plastics and that, you know, that's that. And now as an attending, you know, I'm taking call and I'm treating patients who have general ENT problems. And that's still part of my expectation. And the board certification is from otolaryngology. And so I would say like, don't lose sight of that you want to be well-versed in all areas of ENT. And you may obviously specialize in something further and that's great. But at the end of the day, like when a patient comes to you, you're still an otolaryngologist and you should have that training, not just in the field that you love, like facial plastics or whatever that may be, but an appreciation and, and an ability to still treat the other areas of ENT as well. Yeah. And there's this underlying assumption that those who do plastic surgery are solely doing aesthetic non-functional surgeries, but that isn't true at all because uh, you are trained to do functional surgeries and you do perform that on a regular basis yourself. So in fact, in one of your posts, uh, you highlighted that one of the aspect, one of the unique aspects of otolaryngology is the balance of elective scheduled procedures, right? Mm -hmm. with the management of emergencies of the airway, head, and neck region. So what percentage of your fellowship weeks uh, do you spend on emergencies? That's a great question. And so, I mean, certainly you were trained to do both cosmetic and functional, um, and functional meaning reconstructive. I'll just give some background for cancer reconstruction, facial nerve paralysis, um, gender affirmation surgery. And so there's like all, I mean, and then trauma, of course, is a huge aspect of facial plastic surgery. And so, you know, we're ultimately, we're expected to be able to address all of those aspects in our training and in terms of board certification, et cetera. What you choose to do down the line as an attending, you can certainly decide what, how much of each you want to pursue. Um, in my fellowship at Mount Sinai, there's certainly a, a, a good emphasis on the non-aesthetic aspects as well. Um, and so certainly facial nerve paralysis, trauma is an, an, more of a, not a necessarily emergent, but an urgent intervention, um, gender affirmation surgery, cancer reconstruction is a big part as well. And then of course there is an aesthetic component um, and then just breathing in general, like people who want to have improved breathing um, from, a, from a functional perspective. Emergencies, I would say that typically comes in from general otolaryngology call. And so 
depending on your type of practice in ENT or facial plastics, where if you're a hospital-based, private practice-based, community hospital-based, et cetera, academic center, um, there's usually some component of general ENT call as well. And that's where the emergencies come for things like airway. So the ENT doctors are the airway surgeons and um, certainly there there's overlap with trauma surgery as well, but usually when there's an airway issue and there needs to be some sort of surgical airway, there's an ENT person involved in an academic center. And so percentage wise, luckily it's not too high. I mean, that's good for us and for the patients, um, but certainly being able to manage that is an absolute must. Um, and there oh, yeah, are other you know, emergencies too, but airway is the most important. Right. Yeah. I mean, being able to handle the emergencies are, are uh, crucial. Um, so what type of surgeries would you say are more complex? In, in ENT? Or it's, it's a very broad based question. But in terms of, you know, um, out of all the surgeries that you're doing, maybe functional versus non-functional, um, what type of surgeries would you say are more complex to perform or to really hone the skills? It's an interesting question. You know, I would say complexity is multifaceted in the sense that you know, some procedures take hours to do. Um, and that's where, where it's complicated, where you need different teams involved. So for example, you know, facial nerve surgery, facial reanimation to for people who had facial nerve paralysis, um, that is usually a couple hours long surgery and very detail oriented because you have to find the nerves and monitor them. And if they need a free flap or a piece of tissue from a different part of their body, then you need two surgical teams involved and then that's an hour, many hours long of surgery. Um, so complexity in terms of hour length would be something like um, something like that. You know, then you have surgeries like rhinoplasty, where the actual amount of time in maybe the equipment is not as cumbersome or high in quantity, but the technical aspects are very challenging. And rhinoplasty is essentially a nose surgery, and it can be for breathing or for cosmetics. Um, but there, every millimeter makes even half a millimeter makes a difference, right? If you think about if the shape of your nose was different by half a millimeter, it's something you notice. Um, the, the challenge is, I think, rhinoplasty, I would say, is a, is a challenging thing for trainees to learn because it's different in terms of the skin, cartilage, bone, all of that combination is very different than any other aspects of the face. Um, so I think for as a trainee, getting hands-on experience to learning those how to do a rhinoplasty is the most challenging. Um, rhinoplasty has also been very elusive for our field for years and years because how predicting how rhinoplasty heals over time is very difficult. Um, even in the hands of the most experienced rhinoplasty surgeons, you know, one of my attending from residency has this interesting PowerPoint where he shows the same patient at year one, five, 10, and 20 after surgery, and the nose looks completely different. And it's because, you know, as people age and how every person heals and the scar tissue and that small amount of real estate of your nose, you know, it's very hard to predict even. In, and he's an amazing surgeon, but it's certainly a challenge for, for our field. And so I think that I guess going back to your question of complexity, it's, it's so hard to say, but there's very different aspects of that. No, I mean, that definitely makes a lot of sense, especially with something like the ear, the nose, the eyes. It's there's, as you said, so many different layers involved. Right. Um, in such a small amount of space, I can imagine how difficult it can be. So, so yeah, one one hundred percent. I think it would be a little unjust if we don't go through your education career because, again, as we talked about, the CV looks good, but 
there's obviously other aspects of it that aren't mentioned in the CV that really define who you are as a person and how your journey has been. So as we talked about, it is evident that for you, self-discipline has been very kind of highly utilized um, in your life, especially considering the intensity that comes with being in top institutions, right? In the country such as Harvard, Stanford, Hopkins, like you have all the names under your belt. <laughs> so <laughs> along with self-discipline what other traits would you say helped contribute to your academic success and kind of where you notice some of like some of the pitfalls were in terms of being at such a intense and high highly astute oh. place <laughs> um i think you know it, i think it's important to note that and this is something that i realized like you know there are so many people and i've also seen this in my in my experience as a um alumni interviewer for college, there's so many talented students and people out there who work just as hard. And this is something I feel myself too, you know, and who, you know, really deserve to be getting whatever they want in terms of whether it's getting accepted to a certain school or on award. And the unfortunate reality is like, sometimes there's a lot of luck involved. And then, I mean, that's not to be a cop-out answer by any means, but it's true. And I really think that there are so many elements involved and when I was in high school, I realized that like, or I felt like if I didn't get this or if I didn't get to this school, it would be like the ultimate law. The end of the world. Exactly. And and that's not true at all. And there's so many deserving people who should be at these institutions. Um, but there's other factors and a lot of it is luck and chance in your year. Um, and so I, I do, you know, recognize that, that there is a lot of other elements involved other than just, you know, self-discipline and um, you know, certainly for me, my family was like integral to helping me in my career, extremely supportive and always you know, anything I needed, they were always there. And that's why you know, I really wanted to come back to New York because, you know, they were such an important part of my kind of training and educational experience. Um, you know, what, if I had the chance to do some, you know, give a talk to a group of peers or even, I guess, younger students, one thing I would emphasize is when you look at someone's CV, you know, that's great. And like, it really just says a lot of where they've been and what their experiences are. But I would love to do a talk on taking people's CVs and then putting right next to them a list of their failures. And not just just say, you know, everybody, like, they failed and they're not, they're not, you know, right. they're capable of making mistakes. Have you heard of the concept of uh, CV of failures? No, I haven't. Oh, has somebody already done that? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically you have your cv like it's it just another cv uh -huh. but it's uh, listed with all the failures that you have gone through in your life wow i mean i think it's incredible and like i wish you know people like the people i admire like i would love to see just out of curiosity and also for inspiration because you never that's not something people emphasize but i think it's important right like there's so many failures and losses that experience to get to you know one victory and i think the problem with seeing a CV, like you're saying, is mm. that you just see it and you just see all the good stuff. Um, but that's something I would just other unsolicited advice to people listening would be just remember that people have before you have certainly failed to get there. And there's a lot of luck and chance involved as well. Uh, in terms of being at the institutions, you know, I had I, I feel very lucky that I was able to go there and I had incredible experiences. Um, I think the first thing I noted was I felt 
I was very humbled to be there because there are people way more qualified than I felt like I would ever be and had done all these amazing things by the time they were 18. And I just felt like, and do I really, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, do I really belong at these institutions where I feel like, you know, am I really worthy of being here? And I think that's why, you know, really reminding yourself that everybody has these failures and and you do deserve to be there because there's something about you that's special that got you to where you are. And, and then, you know, I think that's helpful in the imposter syndrome in medicine in general. Um, the other thing I felt would be something I really found interesting or helpful was there are so many resources at these institutions, wherever you are, you know, there are so many resources and utilizing whatever you have available, because no one's going to put that on a, on a platter and give that to you and say, hey, go to this course or listen to this lecture. Um, really utilizing, you know, whatever opportunities you have there is going to define your experience, because certainly anyone who goes to or everyone who goes to Harvard for undergrad does not have the same experience. And a lot of it is what you choose to make of that. So, you know, for me, I, I felt like I wanted to, I felt like hungry there, you know, I wanted everything. And so if, you know, Anthony Scalia was giving a lecture at the law school, I made sure I you know, heard of that. I looked that up and went there or, you know, Yo-Yo Ma had a concert in, in the playing in the courtyard somewhere else. And, and you have all these resources available to you for courses and mentors and, like extracurricular activities or really utilize everything you have and not just at a place like Harvard, anywhere you go, you know, that's what I, that's kind of would be my advice um, or what I tell when I interview applicants for colleges, um, you know, really find what's out there and use it because here's your chance. You're given a gift to to make the most of it. 100%. So speaking of failures though, what would be your favorite failure? So um, if you had to choose one. Yeah. Lots. I mean, th- I think that that's the thing is like, there's, I mean, there's so many that I can think of, you know, for every success, probably like five to 10 failures. And, and I think by failure, you know, failures, even just like applying for a scholarship or an award, you know, and not getting that, I mean, it feels like the end of the world, but, um, you know, certainly I think for me, like residency was very challenging. And I think, I don't know if I would say there was any overt failures, but I really felt like it took me my all my junior residents to really feel comfortable in doing procedures and feeling comfortable in being like kind of taking ownership of a situation or dealing with emergencies. And of course you have backup, but it sort of felt like a failure because it just, it, I felt like it was taking longer than perhaps other people around me. Um, and I think, you know, residency medical training is hard because for some of us, there's this constant feel like, am I really deserving to be here? Am I doing the right thing? This whole imposter syndrome we're talking about, maybe even more, more so for women, which is why I think it's so important to kind of normalize failure and feeling inadequate, whether it's real or not. Um, maybe maybe failures is not the right, or maybe inadequacies, you know, like just feeling like, do I really know what I'm doing? Am I really belonging here? And your colleagues, oh, I did this procedure myself. I did this myself, you know, Um I think residency was definitely a struggle. And I would say for anyone who's in residency, who's listening, it's tough. It's really tough. And whether your colleagues say anything, you know, whether they commiserate or not, like there are plenty of people before you, after you're going to find it challenging, but if it's something you want to do, then, you know, find people who are willing to kind of commiserate with you, whether it's your mentors. And I had mentors who attendings who said, yeah, I had struggled during residency too. And I had challenges because I was not necessarily the most um, outspoken person in a room or an emergency and, and how they overcame that. So that to me was most important, like finding people ahead of me who were willing to admit that they also struggled and to see where they are. And that kept me going. It is also very interesting because when you grow up, uh, there are certain expectations and the way you grow up definitely shapes 
a little bit how you act with other people. And the reason why I say that is because, um, like, if you have parents who have pushed upon you the agenda that you always have to be competitive, you always have to, you know, succeed and uh, be the very best, then it can get into your head, even like later on down the line, even though you don't want it to, right? It's like, it's, it's, it becomes a subconscious part of you mm-hmm. where it's like now you're comparing yourself and you're feeling the, quote-unquote inadequacies but then that's not really the case in in reality because everyone is struggling it's like um you only see the glamour right of this one perfect surgeon story is very important as we keep going back to right right absolutely i think i mean it's hard because especially with social media i mean those are good things of course but um it's hard because there's always constant comparison and competition and so i think just staying as much as you can staying true to who you are and recognizing that you know, failure and also inadequacy. Feeling this way is not is not uncommon by any means. Right. Thank you so much. I realized that I do have to let you go. We went a little bit over time. I'm sorry, but it was just such a good conversation. I think we got a little bit <laughs> carried away. But yeah. before we do part ways, though, uh, it is tradition around here at Doctors Inn that I take you uh, through a guided story as a closing remark. So we like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctors Inn to rest for a lunch. Now, before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me in this <laughs> cake, uh, case, asks you to share one quote or piece of advice so that I can frame it on my wall. And uh, what would that piece of advice be it can be you know something that you love your life by a principle a like an ideology right no that's that's great i love this aspect um you know something that i actually have on my personal instagram for the last i guess five years it's like the only thing i have there under my name is the quote nothing measurable matters by ee cummings who's a poet um it sounds a little bit you know ironic we've been spending a lot of this time talking about awards or CVs, but it's a helpful reminder for me that these are all very important things in society because society needs to ascribe certain um, values and and how does society do that with awards or names or titles, et cetera. But at the end of the day, like, you know, what really matters, and this is something I've thought a lot about this year, is it, is it the, the awards you have or your CV or whatever, or is it the lived experience? Um, you know, are you, am I going to remember on my deathbed exactly what my CV looked like or the time I spent with my family or doing, pursuing dance or reading a good book, drinking a nice cup of coffee. And so I think that to me is most important. Like, yes, strive for all these things because we are in a society that lives by these measurable, you know, metrics of success. But at the end of the day, you know, nothing measurable really matters. At the end of the day, you can be an amazing person with a great life and have a totally different um you know cv or set of awards etc so that's something that i try to remind myself it's a hard thing to balance but at the end of the day you know do what makes you happy be you don't let somebody else define who you are and don't let these societal metrics define who you are you know nothing even if you get that award or get that position or you don't it doesn't change who you are what you've done it's it just seems so powerful uh and i just really appreciate the kind of i didn't expect the conversation to be so story driven <laughs> and to be so focused on you know the the story around our lives but it turned into this and in all the beautiful ways so really appreciate it of course thank you so much for having me i really appreciate this time it was great <laughs> i really enjoyed it <laughs> yeah yeah same I, I, was just, I was just about to say like thank you so much you know for 
this deep dive obviously into otolaryngology and leadership but obviously into the other aspects right um that makes us uh humans and it was an absolute pleasure i mean maybe we can bump into each other in real life later into my medical career <laughs> yeah, so Please thank you very, very much of course and I'm, i'm you know i really like what you guys do and keep doing that i mean share these stories and you know normalize lived experiences of, of people in medicine so thank you for having me i really had a great time same same uh thank you so much all right a major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by doctors in all our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com you can also search up doctors in podcast on instagram and on youtube to watch the animated videos uh for each of our episodes also don't forget to follow dr kumar on instagram she has some very lovely posts that i don't think you will regret seeing uh see you next time guys bye